3: Hello and welcome It is Eric Erickson here The Eric Erickson Show Across the state of Georgia I am completely discombobulated this morning (laughs) Show prep It will be done on the fly today Uh, I am a professional I can do this At the bottom of this hour though Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is going to join me Uh, The governor gives his state of the state address uh, Later today I will sit down with the governor uh, This evening And conduct an hourly long interview with him, I will bring to you guys tomorrow morning. You'll get it in full uh, in the morning, his views on the state of the union or state of the state address. I have seen his state of the state address. They sent over a copy to me. It is what they call embargoed by line, which means until the governor gets to a particular line in his address, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Uh, that, that's one reason. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I'm going to, I'm gonna. I'm gonna Pull back the curtain a little bit here before we get into the impeachment news and everything else we got to get to. So I got to I've got to be in Atlanta for several days and just decided to get a hotel room and and got a hotel room. And I got the last good hotel room I could find because with the legislature in session and state of the state today, there are no hotel rooms in in the city of Atlanta. Even down by the airport, they're all booked up in, in Atlanta. And well, apparently my credit card expired or lapsed uh, between the time I booked the hotel room and last night. So I got an email apparently saying I needed to update the credit card or else I never saw the email, so I showed up at the hotel last night and they said, we don't have a room for you. So what do you mean? And the- <laughs> They were sold out. But you I, have been accused. We're uh, uh, the- all uh, wrong, wrong, button here. Um, I so I wound up having to stay like forty-five minutes from the office. I I should have just driven back home last night. Uh, but I did go see nineteen seventeen last night. Holy cow! If you haven't seen it, go see nineteen seventeen. It is an incredible movie. Now let us get into the these these solemn solemn occasion of the american media's coverage of impeachment i got thoughts as you can imagine Uh, but first listen to this
7: the history of this moment as a student of american history uh you know i you know people are going to be studying this for a long time
4: just the ceremony of it walking over delivering the articles of impeachment the house clerk right now appears to still
8: be holding on to the articles of impeachment from what we can tell from the cameras right there Uh, through the rotunda Uh, through Statuary Hall, uh, back to the House of Representatives.
4: And just thinking about the history that they're walking through.
9: This is history, uh, Nia. This is history unfolding. There's a sacramental quality to this. There's a a, a, a ritual. I'm
0: so glad Chris used the word ritual, because that's the word that has been stuck in my head about this all day today. There is something almost religious to it.
9: And I think Pelosi's a real believer in this, about ritual.
0: She
3: said he's been impeached. Forever, they can never erase
9: that. And oh, there's, we know a, that's there's something... a sacramental statement yes. for life mm-hmm. like a priest for life. It yeah. is a perfect, a perfect statement of what she is. I think she's very reverential. Of... I'm, I'm, I'm,
3: we're going to play the rest of this montage of the media of blowing this over. But notice that Chris Matthews keeps going to sacramental. They have turned religion into politics. This is a religious experience for them. Don't underestimate that. Felt, and they told me as they were waiting that this was an historic moment
2: they didn't want to miss.
0: One of the things these senators are going to to think about is what do they want us to think about when we look at their portrait
9: portrait or and some
2: of them might think
0: there will
3: be
9: actual statues that we will someday walk by the building is filled with statues to remind us of people who are the great people before us i think there's also something about this sort of the excommunication aspect of this thing in French, the french revolution what did the guy getting his head taken off hear the drum roll why is there a drum roll why is there is so much ritual in life I mean, just, just the bizarre commentary. I, I want to play a little more of Chris
3: Matthews as a standalone. So you get this, understand this, please understand this. And I don't mean this as a partisan. I I I truly don't. I, I've been aware of this for some time. It's one of the aspects I, I've worked on with with my PhD thesis in seminary uh, on the cultural shifting in this country as so much of the country has moved from uh, a belief in God to to a belief in, in themselves or some other priority, You know, every, everybody has a God. There, there's no such thing as an atheist. Uh, even, even atheists worship something wherever your money goes. That's probably where you worship. And to the extent you spend it just on yourself, well, then you're, you're worshiping yourself. There's your God. Uh, the, the, the reality here, though, is that the Democrats have begun to treat politics as their religion. And there are sacraments. Abortion has become a sacrament. The high priests of the Democratic Party are, are Planned Parenthood abortionists. Another sacrament is protest. Instead of going to church on Sunday, you get up and march in the streets. There's your communion uh, with, with others in the streets. This, this is part of what's happening. So listen to Chris Matthews talk about this.
9: The Senate and say, OK, guys, do your part now. And the idea that the Constitution, long before we even had the uh, Bill of Rights, we had the, the fundamental structure of our Constitution, which said to the Congress under Article 1, you're in charge. You can get rid of a president. If you really decide he has to go or she has to go, that's profound. A president cannot get rid of Congress. It's not like the king can dismiss parliament. So I think the idea of the, uh, of the Congress and it's an awesome, awesome power. But there's also, as you guys have been talking about also with Nicole a few minutes ago, there's a sacramental quality to this. There's a, there's a, a ritual. Just like, you know, I was thinking when you're having. I'm you're trying being, to decide, though, is that good that there's a ritual well, or not? There's we, part well, of me
2: thinks we the Catholics fact that we have a ritual. We Catholics are, I, okay, yeah,
3: I, I, understand I that. Believe but the ritual. fact that we have a ritual for impeachment is kind of depressing. <laughs> well, listen, uh, just so you know, l- l- let me do a, a real quick deep dive here in, in the history of this. Uh, have you ever watched the, the uh, opening of the British Parliament where the Queen comes in? she she comes in her her uh state coach she's in white gowns with a with a diamond tiara on She goes in and she puts on the the garments of the queen the the royal robe the the crown of state the imperial state crown uh she has the scepter and the orb and and the sword of state and all those things around her, much like at coronation and she walks in and and she is enthroned. Uh, in the uh, House of Lords, and then she, what does she do? What 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 is the thing that the the Queen does? She orders uh, Black Rod to take the Black Rod. He's he's a man, and to march across from the House of Lords to the House of Commons and summon them to the Queen. And there's the spectacle of this this gentleman. With this black rod, he, he marches, and, and he's very deliberate in his stride. He's keeping time in his head. He's a military officer. He gets there. They see him coming. They slam the door in his face. They slam the door in his face, and he uses that. The, the end of that black rod has, has a metal tip to it, and he pounds on the door, and no one comes. He pounds a second time. And they open the door, and he comes in, he walks forward, he bows to the scepter, he bows to the speaker, he bows to the majority, he bows to the minority, and he says, the the queen commands the house of commons to the house of lords for the opening of the parliament of the queen's command. And then he bows again, and he goes out, and everybody follows him out, and he walks. Then, and he announces, "Your Majesty, the Queen, your House of Commons, and the Prime Minister." Believe it or not, this is actually where we get the impeachment ceremony from, in slight deviation. When there was, we get impeachment from the British Parliament. Uh, Historically, impeachment was not something the founders pulled out of thin air. It was a process used in Parliament, and it was very similar. When an impeachment would occur, uh, they would be summoned to sit to vote on, on the person being impeached and it was a big spectacle and a lot of what we got from impeachment came from parliament and the original, the very first impeachment was an impeachment of one of the drafters of the constitution whose name suddenly escapes me. I'm going to have to look it up. He wound up being a uh, the first football coach in Tennessee. He was a complete failure in life and he was one of the drafters of the constitution and he had tried to create a land deal to advantage the British against both Indian and French in in the Northwest Territories. Uh, He was impeached for it. It, What was the first impeachment? Was the first impeachment a crime? No. There was no crime involved. The first impeachment was an abuse of power, just an abuse of power. And the people who impeached him in the House of Representatives were drafters of the Constitution. And the people who were to try him in the Senate were drafters of the Constitution. And actually the Senate decided they had no power to impeach a member of Congress. That impeachment only worked against the judiciary and the and the executive. And Philip, who works for me, is on delay here listening because he's a huge Tennessee football fan and that crack was meant for him. And he just responded <laughs> in, in any of it. Uh, so the Senate— Decided they could not actually impeach the guy, so they had to use the expulsion power under the Constitution, and that was established, that precedent was established, uh, that they um, they would expel members of Congress instead of impeaching them, but the judiciary and the executive would be impeached. Now, they had to come up with a process to do the impeachment. How is an impeachment done? And the processes they looked to were the processes used in Parliament in Great Britain. They were familiar with that process. They, of course, had been British subjects. And so a lot of the pomp and circumstance that we get actually came from that, the marching of the articles of impeachment over. Now for the president, they, took it to, they take it to the next level. And for president, they they did with uh, Andrew Johnson. A lot of the prompt and circumstance and procedure used with Andrew Johnson has been forgotten to history. They weren't good back then, uh, at keeping records. Pay attention to what happened to the Declaration of Independence and why it's in such shoddy condition, you'll understand. For a while, it was tacked up in the wall of what the Commerce Department. They literally just had it stapled to the wall of the Commerce Department. so nailed to the wall, wasn't even in a frame. Uh, only when they start this this revival of American Republicanism uh, hit us in the first hundredth in the hundredth anniversary, they went looking. Where is the Declaration of Independence? It was nailed to the wall. I think of the Commerce or Treasury, one of the old buildings there. They had to go get it and rescue it. That that's how much they paid attention to this stuff back in the day. That's where the procedure comes from. Now, let let me get to this because I'm actually getting some messages from friends of mine who are listening and uh, some listeners who have emailed in asking the same thing. Uh, Can the president run for reelection in November if he's convicted in impeachment? And the answer is yes. The president can be convicted and removed from office and run again in November. There is a caveat, however. Under Article 1 of the Constitution, the Senate has the sole power to try impeachments and upon conviction may strip someone of their privilege of ever seeking office at the federal level again so the senate if they were to convict him you can be darn sure they would do this they would bar the president from running for reelection uh... at the federal level now they have no power at the state level so the president could go run for governor somewhere if he wanted but he could never run for president of the united states again and i, I would uh, presume that no, no president has ever been convicted in an impeachment but my guess is that yes in fact uh... they would bar the president of the united states from ever running for federal office again. uh, They don't want to make the Alcee Hastings mistake. A lot of congressmen, even a lot of Democratic congressmen, now recognize that that was a mistake with Alcee Hastings. Alcee Hastings is a member of Congress, but Alcee Hastings was originally a federal district judge who was uh, found to be taking bribes or whatnot. He was impeached. Uh, The Senate convicted him. He fought it. He was convicted in an impeachment. It was a bipartisan impeachment, but they failed to vote to bar him from seeking office. And Alcee Hastings was a a popular populist in his district, uh, in his area of Florida, and his voters, uh, he ran for Congress and wound up getting elected to Congress. He's the only person ever impeached to get elected to office after being impeached other than the very first dude uh, who was expelled from the Senate instead of actually being convicted in impeachment. Uh, and he that guy had to flee to Tennessee. So C. Hastings is the example that Congress bitterly remembers, even the Democrats privately regret um, not barring him for from seeking office. So they would absolutely do that, but he's not going to be convicted. Uh, he's not. And I, I want to spend some time. We've got Jeff Duncan at the bottom of the hour, lieutenant governor here in Georgia. I want to talk to him about state stuff. We'll flip back and forth between federal and state issues as we go along. And we've got the Lev Parnas matter as well. He's begun to give interviews. I got a lot of thoughts on Lev Parnas. Uh, the phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877 973 7425 877 973 7425. If you want to be part of the program, we are very welcome uh, to have your phone calls. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877 97 Eric. E R I C K. E R I C K. I got a K. It's a C and a K. Uh, that translates into 877 973 7425. If you would like to be a part of our program, we are very happy to take your phone calls. At the bottom of this hour, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is going to be joining me. And and the next hour, Congressman Jody Heiss is going to be joining me to talk about impeachment. He has obviously been very involved in that. This hour of the program is sponsored by Dynamic Money. I actually went to see 1917 last night, and Chris Burns showed up uh, to to watch his second showing. Uh, Dynamic Money is Chris Burns' company. He is my wife's and my financial advisor, like literally, seriously. He was my financial advisor before he became a guest host or a sponsor of the program. Uh, Great guy, has helped us tremendously. Really, his company, you know, we, we were really thinking of using the Dave Ramsey model. We got a lot of friends who... Uh, have used the Dave Ramsey model, and it's great, but I, I, I'm kind of I, – I do have to use credit cards, and Dave's model is very anti-credit card, and it was far more disruptive to my life than I thought it really needed to be, and, and given the life that I lead, traveling a lot and whatnot and having to have credit cards for stuff like that, and, uh, you know, I, I – Chris – Man, uh, he has helped us pay off uh, a great deal of credit card debt that I have built up since college, and then with medical bills and stuff, uh, was able to help us get our house refinanced. He doesn't work on a commission. Uh, it, it is a flat fee, consulting fee for him, uh, and then he get, takes you through a process of teaching you a family budget so that you don't have to rely on him. You can do it all yourself. Uh, really one of those people who he, he doesn't uh fish for you he teaches you to fish and i love that uh he's a he's gotten to be a good friend too but dynamic money is a great company and we couldn't do this program without them we couldn't do it without their sponsorship uh if you're interested in being an advertiser or sponsor let us know but this hour brought to you by dynamic money if you're looking for your own sort of sort of financial planner dave ramsey type uh chris burns Man, he has has he's been a, a blessing to my wife and me when it comes to getting our finances sorted. Uh that is dynamicmoney.com. All right. We gotta talk a little bit more about I I we you know what I'm I'm gonna put off uh, Lev Parnas because he's starting to speak. One thing I wanna say and, and I wanna say it right now, we, we had the spectacle last night of all the the pins. The Great Pins, uh, Nancy Pelosi handing out pins to people. This is, a, uh, this is something that was started, I believe it was by Lyndon Johnson when he signed the Great Society uh, Poverty Package into law. What Lyndon Johnson did, they, or it might have been the Voting Rights Act, but I think it was, was the Great Society, he took a stack of pins and he made each stroke of his signature uh, was one pin. And then he gave those pins to the members of Congress who had done yeoman's work to get the Great Society package passed and gave them pins as souvenirs. And it began to be a bill signing tradition. Now, Pelosi has done this before herself, but she's never done it that publicly. And they actually had a pile of pins, not just the, the, the initial ones that she signed with. They had a pile of pins behind her that she used. Here's some of the CNN commentary on this.
4: That's right. And it's a ceremonial. The one thing I will say, and as we were watching it, um, we are used to seeing um, signing ceremonies, handing out pens at moments of celebration, when a president is signing legislation, uh, when even sometimes, a rare occasion, but it has happened when the House sends over a landmark piece of legislation. Um, it It was unusual to see that kind of um of ceremony and and making you know handing out the pens and smiling for a picture mm-hmm. in this kind of situation where the house speaker has bent over backwards to say publicly and privately this is somber this is not a time for a celebration understandable this is history and the people who are involved want to mark the moment uh, but I didn't expect to see that.
9: Yeah, Yeah, I thought that was a little jarring and certainly I think off message because you heard Nancy Pelosi there say, in fact, that this was a sad and tragic day. uh, And then there she is holding up the pen and and, uh, having photographs taken with those pins. So, yeah, I think it was a little off message for someone who has tried to set a very serious tone. uh, And and here she is
4: posing for photographs with a pen. So probably not the The committee chairman in the yeah so
3: this was notable because Dana Bash there giving the original commentary, is right that this is done in moments of celebration. And you know, some of these pins are probably going to wind up on eBay. so so some of these Democratic congressmen are going to fundraise, auction them off, raise money, do some such. Uh, just yeah. Nancy Pelosi tried to do her solemn ceremony and tried to make it a sad and somber occasion. A sad and somber occasion, as Charlie, my producer, pointed out, is is, uh, accidentally shooting down a Ukrainian airline jet. A sad and somber occasion is someone dying. Uh, A sad and somber occasion is a terrorist attack. Not signing articles of impeachment that was just a, a partisan affair, uh, this was this was not a sad and somber occasion. It was just a an f and a u to the President of the United States and his base. They have never once tried to convince people to go along with impeachment. They have just decided that they would bully people and scream harder and maybe convince you by their screams and their bullying that you needed to go along with it. No one's mind has been changed the entire time. and that is that's that's a sad and depressing affair to see folks. Uh, When we come back, though, we're going to move on. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan going to join me after the break. Yes, you can go to the resurgent or you tune into your local station, 9 to noon across the state of Georgia. Literally, you can drive from Chattanooga to Valdosta now on 75 and hear my voice live in every radio market from 9 to noon, which is kind of surreal to me, and down 16 now uh, until you get to Savannah. We're working on Savannah, though. Um, across the state of Georgia we are. And joining me here uh, in the run-up to the state of the state uh, later this morning in underneath the Gold Dome, the lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia, how are you?
7: I'm good. You you just made me nervous. You just described how big your audience is.
3: <laughs> well, and we continue to grow. It, it really is surreal though.
7: <laughs> oh, that's great. Congrats on the success.
3: Thank you very much. So, now let let's let's talk about the legislature and, and I want to just ambush you wild card here out of the gate. I know last year and we've talked about this before. Education is a is something near and dear to your heart and giving people the the freedom to decide how they educate their kids and where they do and I know this is going to be an issue this year, and, and I know some of the usual folks are already uh, pushing against it, and, and I just wanted to get your your sense of how things are shaping up.
7: Yeah, so, in, in my mind, I think the greatest gift the state of Georgia can give a child is a quality K-12 through education, and, uh, you know, my wife and I are very fortunate. We live in Forsyth County, and we've got three kids in the public school system up there, and they do an amazing job of educating and preparing our kids for a 21st century global economy. In the two and a half years I spent traveling around the state, not every community is as fortunate as Forsyth County is. I think it's an opportunity that uh, we want to make sure that these kids are getting the education they need to prepare them for the future. Uh, and we also, in certain circumstances, need to need to be able to empower the parents to help make those decisions. Uh, you know, be able to put their kids in in opportunities for success. Uh, I think we'll continue to see some some motion towards that happening. And And like I said, I come at this from an interesting angle uh, because my kids are in public schools. I'm a product of the public schools. My wife's a product of the public schools. Um, And so we want to look for opportunities to just empower this student-centered educational process as we go forward in every community.
3: Well, listen, I I I can't I I can't encourage you enough on on this fight because you you know some of our counties around here and you know, Forsyth now I I guess is listed as the wealthiest county in the state. It's got excellent schools. I've got a bunch of friends who live there. I've got a bunch of friends who have moved to Forsyth. The the explosion of there just as an aside, the explosion into Forsyth and Cherokee County in the state has been incredible over the last number of years. And of course, that also means that there's infrastructure issues that have to be dealt with. What well, what are you really overall your agenda? Into, for this session? What are you really focusing on beyond education?
7: Yeah, three three big areas of focus for me. One is we, we had a lot of good ground we gained last year around healthcare. care. Uh, you know, look, healthcare is a big deal because, you know, the feds have essentially punted on the issue. And, and what we're seeing is states now being empowered to take more and more of an active role in reforming the way health care is delivered. The governor uh, and did, did a great job and uh, his team on the 1115 and 1332 waivers, which last year – uh, we put together in the General Assembly, but allowed us to to really kind of reform the way we deliver. Uh, we made great great strides in telehealth and in modernizing that, and and uh, transparency across the the, the hospital systems. Uh, this year, we're going to spend a lot of time around price transparency and the right to shop. Uh, I don't think there's an industry out there that operates like the healthcare industry does, and that you know I spoke to a bunch of bankers last night. and I said, what if you could give a loan? And you didn't have to tell anybody what the interest rate was until three weeks after they signed the document, <laughs> right? And 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 I looked out in the room and I, I said, half of you have this shock look on your face, and half of you have this, you know, you know, jealous look on your face. Um, but that's the way healthcare operates. We don't know how much it costs until it shows up in our mailbox, right? And so we think there's an opportunity to do two things: to blend quality and price, and empower the patient or the customer to be able to make that decision. Uh, we think technology now is ready. To, to embrace that data and be able to, to put that in front of the, uh, the consumer's hands. Secondly, we're going to focus on foster care. Uh, you know, look, uh, the state of Georgia is the parent when, in, in a foster care system, and uh, I think we can do a better job of taking care of kids in foster care. We're going to explore ways to, to deliver health care and mental health services better for not just the, not just the foster kid, but the families that support those foster kids. Uh, we want it to be easier for them to get them to the pediatrician or to a specialist or to a therapist to walk them through some of the most difficult days of their life. And then secondly, think about this. Eighteen-year-old foster kid essentially ages out of the system. So the day you turn 18, you age out of the system, and it's it's here you go. You're ready for life, or at least you need to be ready for life. Seven hundred kids a year get that message when they turn 18. The stats are alarming. Ninety-seven percent of those kids end up in chronic poverty, Seventy-one percent of those of, of the girls end up pregnant within the first year, and only eleven percent have a high school diploma or GED equivalent. We can do better. We will do better. And I want Georgia not just to say we're the number one state to do business in. I want them. I want foster kids to say it's the number one state to be a foster kid in. Wow. And last, and, and, and last, I, we want to be the technology capital of the East Coast. We're mm. going to push hard. Uh, we just put together a task force yesterday headed by Johnny Isaacson. Bud Peterson, Paul Judge, Paul Bowers. These are this is a working group that's going to advise me on ways to attract investment from around the world to keep and incubate big ideas here, to invite the best and brightest from around the world to, to bring their big ideas and develop them. Um, we think there's a great opportunity for Georgia, all of Georgia, not just not just Atlanta, but all of Georgia to become the technology capital of the East Coast.
3: Well, uh, look first. I, I really am blown away by your passion on foster care, and and um, thank you for that because it, it's an issue near and dear to mine and my wife's heart as well. And I, I don't understand. I don't know that most people actually understand unless they're in a church that has an active foster care ministry. Don't really understand how big an issue it is. It, it's it's kind of abstract to them. So thank you. Uh, and on the technology issue, you mentioned all of Georgia and so much of the conversations, it seems like in the media, because the media is so Atlanta driven, really do focus on I-20 and north. And I know we've talked about in the past, there's a lot of land south of I-20 ripe for development, but there there are infrastructure issues and transportation issues and education issues that affect all that. But at some point, it just seems like uh, north of I-20, we're going to run out of land to, to build development centers.
7: Yeah, look, the technology capital of the East Coast mentality is, you know, technology knows no boundaries. Every single business is a technology company. You know, if I go to South Georgia, you've got ag tech coming alive and investments being made and looking for strategy around how you can harvest and plan and cultivate and and, and market and and become more efficient. I was with the Port Authority yesterday, and they're talking about logistics tech from around the world coming here, looking for ways to more efficiently manage, you know, all of the container freight that's coming in and out. Uh, Augusta has really gotten good on the cyber tech uh, front. Um, health IT is really developing itself around Midtown. FinTech is really building a name for itself globally on the North Atlanta side. So for me, technology knows no boundaries, and it could be the greatest lifeline to rural Georgia. Uh, we got to make sure we keep making great strides on delivering high, high-speed Internet broadband deeper into the state so that there's no communities left behind. Um, but here, here's what I know. we got to build an ecosystem of talent you know, we, we, we t- every company is built on the backs of talented individuals. And so we want to make sure that the best and brightest stay here, right? The kids that are coming through the K-12 system and the higher ed system, and they have a workforce development program. We want to make sure that the best and brightest around the world think it's a logical step to come to Georgia to kick off their career or to, to grow their career. Um, and we want those big-dollar investors from around the world that, that are so important in the ecosystem of venture capital and private equity – to say, you know what, gosh, they've they got a lot going on in Georgia, right? And they're willing to make that investment in Tifton. They're willing to make that investment in Savannah. They're willing to make that investment in Ringgold. They're willing to make that investment in Buckhead. That's what we need to do. And, and if we do this right and we look up in 10 or 20 years, I think we're going we're gonna to absolutely – I think the world and history in general is going to point back to this period of time to be as important as the invention of the wheel. The way we've, we've streamlined commerce, the way we've captured a global attention – uh, this is a big deal, and we want to make sure that the universe is watching Georgia.
3: Well, listen, if if we can pull that off as a state, I, I think that's fantastic. I'm, I'm sitting here privately chuckling. I, I had to actually go give a speech recently in Buckhead, Georgia, and was expecting something a little more like Buckhead in Atlanta, and there were way more cows out in Buckhead, Georgia. So just yeah, if I, we I get think some
7: – I think their phrase is, it's the real Buckhead yes. or something
3: like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know it actually existed until I gave a speech out there. Now, I, I want to, for those of you just tuned in, I'm talking to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Uh, the state of the state comes up in a little while. And I, can you just give the listeners, I, I know people who are curious about this, just the sense of what is your day like when the legislature's in session? Yeah, so, uh,
7: you know, I. I being lieutenant governor carries uh carries no weight at my house i've got three three kids going to school so it's (laughs) it's normally an early early rise and we're packing lunches and getting kids to the bus stop and and then uh jump in with the troopers and drive down to the capitol early uh and make a bunch of calls and come in and have meetings with senators and constituents and uh, come up to the session and uh you know presiding officer up there every day is a different day some are easier than others um and then a bunch of speeches trying to tell, tell people about what we think uh, the direction of Georgia needs to head. Uh, it, it's quite honestly, I've had this job now for 12 months. I, I feel like I told a crowd yesterday. I feel like a seasoned veteran with 12 months under my belt. <laughs> um, but th- this period of time during the year while we're in session is, is the part I enjoy the most. I'm a, I'm a recovering athlete. Uh, I got to spend a bunch of years playing professional baseball, mostly or in, in college and then the minor leagues. And, um, this is game day. I get to show up every day. This is game day. You've got to be ready. You've got to be prepared. You know, our team is a policy over politics, you know, office. And, uh, you know, we, we want to be intellectually honest with every conversation we have, which means you need
8: to be prepared for
7: it. Uh, so we're working. We we definitely work hard, but this is the most fun time of the year for me.
3: Well, and before we get off here, just you mentioned that policy over politics. You do have an opposition there in, in the Senate and in the House, and they they seem to have gotten very good over the last couple of years with message coordination, uh, designed to to do their best to put Republicans on defense. They've got a sympathetic media around the state to do it, and it, it seems like every time Republicans try to advance on whether it's foster care or technology, I'm I'm always shocked at how uh, some partisan complaint from the other side can come up to try to make Republicans trying to fix foster care, for example, look bad.
7: Yeah, look, our team is committed, like I said a minute ago, to be intellectually honest in every conversation. And to do that, you've got to be armed with data, facts and figures and really come at this from from a concrete perspective, right? It's just understanding what, you're, what you can be rooted in on your positions. And so that's really how we disarm folks that are that are against us for political reasons, is we just continue to remind them of the facts. When I walk into a room and I talk about 97% of, of kids that age out of foster care end up in chronic poverty, 71% of the girls are pregnant within year one, and only 11% have a GED or a high school diploma, I dare you to interject politics to try to beat those statistics. I dare you. Mm-hmm.
3: That's a fair point. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, listen, I, I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. I'll be down there later this afternoon. I'm, I'm hoping that nobody from the House Representative sees me come in. <laughs> I, I may come over to the Senate and say hi, but listen, thank you very much for stopping by. I, I, I appreciate this very much, and, and best of luck to you guys as this session fires up. I know the budget and everything else is going to give you all some headaches down there.
7: Never a dull moment.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan uh, joining me from the state capitol. Uh, the State of the State Address will be brought to us uh, later. I may carry some of that live here on the program. Uh, Brian Kemp, I think he's supposed to give it at 11 o'clock. Uh, we may go to it here during the program. Uh, we've also got Congressman Jody Heiss will be stopping by here in Uh, the next hour to talk about impeachment. This hour of the program brought to you by Dynamic Money. Uh, If you need help building a budget, learning finances and the like, go to dynamicmoney.com. Check out Chris Burns and his team. Uh, And I want to – let me me spend just another moment here on state stuff before we pivot back into the national stuff. The lieutenant governor mentions foster care, and I I can't emphasize enough – how, one, for a lot of people, it is an abstraction. You, you don't understand the way foster care in this state is a huge burden on a lot of people. Uh, it is a huge burden on a lot of children. I know people who, in fact, I, I know a a politician who you all know here in the state of Georgia, uh, not Sonny Perdue. Sonny Purdue and his wife were huge foster parents, uh, really believed in, in the family. Uh, so I, I I know a particular politician of the state, very, very prominent, very prominent politician. He and his wife have been foster parents in the past, and he will not talk about it publicly uh, because he, he does not want to ever risk putting the kids who stayed with them uh, in the spotlight for malicious people. And I was talking to him and his wife uh, very recently about they would get phone calls at two o'clock in the morning saying, "Can you take a can you take a kid in?" Something had happened and, and opening their house in the middle of the night, trying to keep a room together if if they needed it for a foster child to come in. It is a real ministry. It, it, it is an opportunity to to witness and share the gospel and share a, a warm meal and and build a family and, and help a child find some stability and, and really all they want is to be home with mom and dad. If they can. And I cannot credit both the lieutenant governor and the governor. And, you know, there are a number of other legislators out there who are firmly committed to this issue. It was actually Governor Purdue, now Secretary of Agriculture Purdue's wife, who really made uh, foster care a, a big issue in the state, uh, cared deeply about the issue. And not everyone can be a foster parent. I I listen, I've got friends, this is like I, it, it, don't don't misunderstand me I, I don't mean to be crass or, or rude in this comparison but I've got friends who are very committed to rescue animals and they get mad if you go to a breeder to get a dog because there are so many dogs in in rescue and my wife and I actually got guilted Sean Hannity listen I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna shame Sean Hannity here Sean's the guy who told me go go get a rescue dog and and we did and the rescue dog wound up biting my wife and herding the kids into the corner, had some serious issues, and they said this was a dog appropriate for kids, and it wasn't. We got another dog. That dog had all sorts of screwed up issues, and we just were a family not capable of doing it. We ultimately took a couple of years off and then went with a, a golden doodle. There was a, a breeder very near Athens and that we were able to go to, and I've got friends of mine who are still mad at me for doing that. And in the same way, there are people who have, because they do it, they are convinced every single person can be a foster family. And I got to tell you, there are a lot of people who can't. My wife and I cannot be foster parents. We very much wanted to be foster parents, and we can't be foster parents. uh, Given my wife's health and and my travel situation and everything else, it's just, we, we would not be a stable household for foster children to come into. But we try tremendously to help our friends who are foster families, and there are a lot of people who don't understand that, yeah, actually, there are some people who who can't be. But there are other people who are convinced they can't be, and they can. And we have an entire system in this state of foster care that is failing. Uh, So many kids in the state, they they don't have foster families. They've got to live in orphanages, frankly. They've got to live under state care, and the state should not be a mom uh uncle sam can't deliver the mail on time half the time uncle sam should not be in the business of raising kids neither should the state of georgia and kudos to the governor the lieutenant governor the like for stepping up and being very aggressive in trying to build a better foster system in georgia we need that in the state and that is not a partisan issue it is an issue of honor to our families and our children and our citizens and we should all be supportive of the issue You can call that number, 877-973-7425. Yes, you can. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Thanks to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan stopping by. If you want to listen to that interview, if you missed the interview, you can get our podcast. Text the word show to 33777 text the word show to 33777 I will send you back by text message a link to uh google play and apple uh the itunes podcast link so you can do that uh and 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 check out the program I think you you should be a subscriber anyway and you should listen to the podcast when you miss the show because we try to educate you every day now uh I can I just note momentarily how ridiculous it is that people are mad at Alex Trebek for saying a woman who said Palestine instead of Israel for where Bethlehem is uh they're they're mad at him. I mean, this is a man who everybody, everybody was super excited about uh, rallying around Alex Trebek because Alex Trebek is awesome, and he is. Alex Trebek is awesome, and it's horrible that he has pancreatic cancer. And he united the whole nation, and everyone was so excited that the nation was united by Alex Trebek, and I think the president needs to give him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I really do. And now some of the people who who were— Praising Al-Sherbek, want to burn him to the ground because he says uh, Bethlehem is not in Palestine, and it's not. Palestine does not exist. Palestine is not a real place. It is not recognized by the United Nations. It is not recognized by the United States of America. It is not a, it is not a place. The State Department lists Palestinian territory like Bethlehem as disputed territory, not not Palestinian territory, but it's in Israel. And that is a fact. If you want to go there, you land in Israel. You, you deal with Israeli authorities. There are some Palestinian authorities in Bethlehem as well, but it is in Israel. And it is silly nonsense to say otherwise. My goodness gracious. Um, and to, to make Alex Trebek the bad guy, it shows you people just want to get upset about stuff. There are convictional beliefs out there uh, that people hold by faith. And it messes everything up. It's it's a shame to see. Now, when we come back, we will take your phone calls eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. And we got to talk about Lev Parnas. Lev Parnas has begun to make the media rounds. Lev Parnas, I think he he did the. If you don't pardon me, I'm gonna I'm gonna blab. And now he's just making stuff up. And I want to play some of his audio because it, there is some curious phrasing. That Lev Parnas has used. He went on with Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, uh, who never bothered to ask him about the things that the FBI is shaking him down for, supposedly shaking him down, that he's prosecuted for. She just wanted to use him to slam the president, which is a big tip off that if he's going on Rachel Maddow's show to sit down with her for a friendly interview that he's engaged in just part of the partisan witch hunt. He's not actually engaged in trying to be truthful. He's not actually engaged in trying to get the truth, and that is a problematic issue. But the media, of course, they just want to tear up the president. The the media no longer cares about the truth. When everybody can have their own truth, the media doesn't care about the actual truth. And I think we still have an obligation to be committed to the actual truth. And there are concerns. Uh, We should be really concerned with it appears that uh, Lev Parnas and another guy we're, were not above trying to take out the ambassador. We'll get into all that when we come back. Okay, a quick time out for a new sponsor I'm actually excited about, but it's confession time in the process of me being excited about the sponsor. So, you know, after all the lung stuff I had several years ago, it took me a long time before I was cleared to actually go back and do serious exercise at the gym, and I finally decided to go back to CrossFit about three months ago. Now, I've been paying for the private lessons instead of going to the open hours uh, because I don't want anybody to see my fat behind working out right now uh, as I'm doing burpees and uh, double unders and all the other awful stuff. Uh, but I'm only going three days a week because it's expensive to do the private stuff. I got to have to do something at home because I got a couple of days a week where I got to be burning calories when I'm not doing it. And I was really thinking about the Peloton option, but I don't want to pay a ton for Peloton. And it's expensive. Well, I discovered Echelon. And now I'm really actually pleased that Echelon is a sponsor of the show. It's a live and on-demand studio classes in your home. You can use your iPad. Uh, you can put them on your fitness bike. You can put them on, uh, they've got them on the Apple TV or or your TV. You can stream it. You can get them on your iPad. They've even got one of the mirror options where you can do the exercises in the mirror. Join hundreds of thousands of people, myself included now, uh, getting fit with Echelon. You don't have to pay a ton for Peloton. You can get an Echelon bike today for under $1,000. So go to echelonfit.com slash Eric Learn about their limited time free Apple iPad and complete details of the exclusive offer. Echelon. It's your time. Make the most of it and don't go broke doing it. That's E E E C H E L O N E C H E L O N -N fit.com slash Eric. Echelon fit.com slash Eric. Y'all I'm, if I can do it, you can do it. It's great. And we'll get in shape together. Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Joining me at the bottom of this hour will be Georgia's own Jody Heis congressman uh, out of the Athens and middle Georgia area. He will be joining me to talk about impeachment uh, in Washington. We will spend some time with impeachment, the elections and the rest uh, as well. Governor Brian Kemp will be addressing the state here uh, in the next hour or so with the state of the state address. Uh, if if he starts, I, I can't remember if it's at 11 or 12. Uh, if it's at 11, I'll try to bring some of it to you so we can listen to it together. I'll be, uh, He'll be with me for an hour in the morning here on the program. Uh, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, I want to, for our listeners listing on WMAC in Middle Georgia, this one's actually kind of important and, and worth it. It actually affects, uh, some of you on some of the other affiliates as well, but I just, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm covering the situation. Uh, if you are in, um, if you're in middle and South Georgia in particular, uh, whether you're listening on our stations down in, in, uh, middle or South Georgia, you've got flash flood warnings that the national weather service has now issued for, uh, basically every county in middle georgia and headed down into south georgia as well uh the ocumogi river the altamaha uh the oconee uh, they are all expected to uh, get to flood stage so if you're i mean if you're south of i20 uh, just be mindful of the fact that uh, the the tributaries as well are expected to be flooding and the national weather service is saying this is going to last at least uh, until the the eighteenth. If you're on the western side, if you're to the west of I seventy five, if you're to the east of I seventy five and south of I twenty, you're going to go through the twentieth uh, with rivers rising. Uh, given all the rain uh, that we have experienced throughout the state of Georgia, it's all trickling down from our North Georgia affiliates to our South Georgia affiliates, raising their river levels. Now, uh, with that being said, I want to play you. The audio of Lev Parnas. Lev Parnas uh, has been meeting. uh, He's been he talked to Anderson Cooper. He's talked to Rachel Maddow. And I want to I want to play this audio for you. Lev Parnas, as as you know, it appears that I mean, if if you read the text messages, it sounds like he and and this other guy were, were thinking of offing the Ukrainian ambassador. The American ambassador to Ukraine. I mean, they, they were stalking the woman to the point they knew when she had turned off her computer and her cell phone and stuff. They were talking about, quote, unquote, taking her out, um, and they didn't mean on a date. That's just – it. it's bizarre. And I want you to listen to this interview with Rachel Maddow, and I'm going to stop and start this through.
10: He's a key witness to his conversation with Zelensky when he came back and why he left or got fired or however you want to look at that.
4: Let me make sure I understand what you're saying. When Vice President Pence went over there on September 1st, again, in President Trump's stead, you believe, or you have reason to believe, that Vice President Pence was tasked at that meeting with getting President Zelensky to announce investigations of Joe Biden specifically. Yes. And to tell him that they wouldn't get their aid until they...
10: I don't know exactly what he was... But it was all... It's it's all the same.
4: He doesn't actually know,
3: but... He read about it in the paper.
10: So, uh, uh, the, Like I said, the aid itself was something that I think the president decided to do. Uh, what's it called? But it was, he,
3: he thinks the president decided to do the aid. Uh, he thinks.
10: I think a reaction to that there was no uh, announcement being made.
3: He Thinks it was in relation to an announcement. So many attempts and so many promises.
4: So holding the aid was the president's own sort of innovation to to, to add to the leverage, I to add so. to the pressure that
3: I think so. Not I know, but I think so.
4: People like you and so. the vice president and Mr. Giuliani yes. and everybody else involved in this effort was putting on the Ukrainian Correct. government. Correct. Correct. When you say that Mr. Bolton. Um, may have things to say about this. Did Mr. Bolton know that Vice President Pence was supposed to secure that agreement from Zelensky, that he'd announced these investigations?
10: I don't know exactly what Mr. Bolton knew, but I know... I I,
3: I don't know that the Vice President actually did this, he said earlier, and now he he doesn't actually know uh, what Bolton did or did not know.
10: The Bolton was definitely involved in the loop because of the firing of Maria Ivanovich, uh, also his interactions with uh, Rudy Giuliani.
3: So, it, it, how does he how does he know that he read about that in the paper?
10: They started butting heads. He he read that in the paper, uh, and uh, he was not agreeing. It was, uh, I mean, from Venezuela to Ukraine, Bolton didn't agree with, Rudy, with Giuliani on the way of dealing with it. So wait, wait,
11: wait, 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 wait,
3: wait. Well, why, why bring Venezuela into this? Why, why? Because Venezuela was in the news, and and it was well known that John Bolton didn't didn't agree. I mean, this is this is not anything that Lev Partis had inside knowledge on. This was in the freaking New York Times.
4: <sighs>
10: There was tension there. There was there was definitely tension.
4: But you believe he knows what the administration was pressuring Ukraine to do.
10: Bolton, okay. 100%. He knows what happened there.
3: He knows what happened there. You, you know who said he that Bolton knows what happened there? John Bolton. John Bolton said that in TV interviews and on Twitter. This, this guy doesn't know anything. He, he's actually reading headlines. Every time she asks him a specific question about his knowledge, he says, I don't know. I think, but I don't know. Here he is with Anderson Cooper.
5: In terms of who knew about what you were doing in, in Ukraine, did Vice President Pence know?
3: Of course. Of course, he says.
5: I mean, his office has said he was unaware of, you know, that he had met with Zelensky after not going to the inauguration. But he wasn't delivering a message of a quid pro quo.
10: Look, again, like I said, I'm not here to debate. I'm here to get the truth out. He's not. He, he's not, he wants the truth. Got my records. But I how openly... do you know
5: that the vice president would have known what Giuliani was up to? What you Because
10: were to. we would speak every day. I knew everything that was going on.
5: Wait, wait, wait. He would
10: speak to the vice president? What? And after Rudy would speak with the president or, or come from the White House, I was the first person he briefed.
3: So he just admitted that he didn't talk to the vice president, he talked to Rudy Giuliani, and then he admitted that Rudy Giuliani never talked to the vice president. He talked to the president, not the vice president.
10: I mean, we had a relationship. We were that close. I mean, the, I mean, we were together from morning to night. I mean, he took me. I mean, every so, interview he would do, I would be sitting over there while he was doing the interviews. I mean. So
5: Giuliani knew everything you were doing? Everything he was doing. You're saying Vice President Pence knew?
10: I don't know if my vice president knew everything we were doing.
2: Wait, 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 wait. He just
3: said the vice president knew. He he said the vice president knew, and now he says he doesn't know what the vice president actually knew everything.
10: I'm sure he was. But he
5: knew was a quid pro quo.
10: Of course, he knew. Everybody knew. Everybody that was close to Trump knew that this was a thorn in the side, and this was a serious situation. Everybody who was close to the president apparently knew this. Really? Bolton, Mulvaney. Mulvaney. Uh, Bolton, I don't think, agreed with it. I think uh, there's certain people that agreed with it. Now,
3: wait a second, because he just told Rachel Maddow that he knew, he he knew that John Bolton was booze, and now he's
10: telling Anderson Cooper he just thinks it?
5: Agree with it. He, He called it a drug deal, according to Fiona Hill.
10: I think Bolton is a very important witness because I think between me and Bolton, we could fit in all the dots, I think, uh, because I was on the ground there and he was over here. I and mean, you'd
2: be
5: willing to testify?
10: I would be very willing to testify. But,
2: wait a second. But he, he just he, – he
3: doesn't know anything. He just says he thinks. He, he thinks – he said he knew the vice president knew something, and then he admitted that he actually didn't know if the vice
10: president knew that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when when the FBI came to my house uh, today, and my wife felt embarrassed because they said I had a shrine to him. I mean, I had pictures all over. I mean, I, I idolized them. I mean, I thought he was the savior. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, oh wait, 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 wait!
8: <laughs> this guy, this
3: is like liberal fan fiction. I had a shrine to the president. I believed in the president as the as the savior of humanity and I repent. I repent. Father forgive me. I I did not know what I was doing. I have sinned against you, Lord. Forgive me, media. Make me a celebrity against the president. This is like Anthony Scaramucci, but worse.
10: Did you think you were friends? Absolutely. I mean, again, I went from being a top donor, from being at all the events where we would just socialize, to becoming a close friend of Rudy Giuliani's. Wait, wait a
3: second. Wait. He's a friend of Rudy's? Uh, I thought he just said you're friends with the president. And no, he's a friend of Rudy's. To
10: so eventually becoming his ally and his asset on the ground in Ukraine.
3: Wait, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Anderson Cooper's asking him about his relationship with the president. And he, he, he says, oh, I was friends with Rudy. Not, not with the president. He had a shrine to the president. He thought the president was the savior, the messiah.
5: The president has said, when you were arrested, the president of the United States said uh, he didn't know you
2: i don't know those gentlemen now it's possible i have a picture with them because i have a picture with everybody i don't know them
10: the truth is out now thank god <laughs> it was a big day for us i thank god every day i was worried that that day is not going to come i thought they were going to shut me up make me look like the scapegoat and try to blame me for stuff that I wasn't done, but, but
2: Well, Doesn't that now give him an alibi to lie?
3: I was afraid they were going to make me the scapegoat. So now I'm coming to you and giving you the sob story that you all want to hear. This is a perfectly designed story for everybody on the left.
10: God's help and the great legal team that I have besides me.
3: Wait, wait, wait. wait. God's help or Trump's help? You've You've got the shrine to Trump, not to Jesus, buddy.
10: We were able to get the information out, and now it's out there, so... I welcome him to say that even more. Every time he says that I'll show him another picture. He's lying. <laughs> He's lying.
3: Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, hang on. You you've got more pictures of the president. The man who Anderson Cooper asked you when we were friends, and you immediately went to, oh, I was friends with Rudy Giuliani. Y'all, y'all. Seriously? I'm sorry. I listen, I my BS detector isn't the greatest. But it's all the censors are firing on this. He he knew the vice president, knew it was a quid pro quo, and then he doesn't really know what the vice president knows, just what Rudy Giuliani told him. But Rudy Giuliani didn't talk to the vice president. He talked to the president and people knows he said people in the White House. He didn't say he talked to the vice president, people in the White House. This. Wow.
12: Wow.
3: Seriously. This this is what we've got. Seriously. Hey, hey,
7: over to you, Adam Schiff. You know, Lev Parnas, uh, the associate (coughs) of Rudy Giuliani, uh, he's about to speak publicly on television. His lawyer says uh, he's been making his case uh, with a flash uh, social media campaign uh, that's been
8: ongoing. The lawyer has been doing it. Uh, Do you believe Lev Parnas is a reliable witness?
1: I don't want to make any judgments uh, about his credibility or others uh, until we have the opportunity uh, to uh, flesh that out. But I will say this, the documents that he has been willing to provide uh, have been very informative and very important. So we appreciate that cooperation. We think it is shedding important new light on the president's scheme. And when it got started and Rudy Giuliani's role and the role of others... Uh, We're seeing how just deeply troubling that is, including, as you say, indications that the ambassador, uh, who was the subject of this vicious smear campaign, was being surveilled. Um, It may shed light, for example, on a call that she had with a high State Department official back in Washington who said, you need to be out on the next plane. We're concerned about your security. She didn't understand what that was about. These new documents may shed light on just how well-founded those concerns were.
3: So Adam Schiff isn't willing to say he really believes Lev Parnas. He, He wants to hang his hat on the documents and the text exchanges. When Adam Schiff's not willing to come out and fundamentally believe a critic of the president, you know there's a problem. The media is perfectly happy to trot this guy out and put him on TV and, and give him his 15 minutes of fame so that they can play gotcha with the president they don't like. But this guy played gotcha with himself. I mean, my goodness, uh, he, he, he's played gotcha with himself so much he could go blind. It is just crazy that this is a guy the media thinks is credible and Rachel Maddow putting him out there and, and he contradicts himself within sentence clauses. Y'all, Listen. The Democrats could have built a case on impeachment, but they chose not to. They chose to rush it and rush everything over to the Senate, and now they want the Senate to do their job, and that's not going to happen. But to come out on the media with this guy, that's just crazy. I, I'm a a friend in the vice president's office is listening to—maybe I shouldn't say that—listening to the program and just sent a note of thanks about how ridiculous the Left Parnas issue is that he would— go on TV and say that the vice president knew about the quid pro quo and then immediately contradict himself and say he didn't actually know that. But Rudy Giuliani uh, knew that from not from talking to the vice president, but from talking to people in the White House. Uh, This guy is telling the media what they want to hear. When you listen to the Rachel Maddow interview, the only things he's certain about are the things that have actually made it into the news. Everything else is he thinks, he thinks. He thinks not he knows it's when people choose to say i know versus i think in a single conversation uh, you you understand that they're playing you because they're trying to distinguish between uh, the bs and the reality uh, without you really understanding it and he's trying to be too clever by half here the the man sounds like a con artist good gracious Listen, I, I've got no emotional attachment to the president. I would much prefer the vice president of the United States to be the president. But if you're going to come after him, come after him with something other than this. And that's part of my frustration with impeachment is the Democrats now want Republicans in the Senate to call a bunch of witnesses who the Democrats in the House couldn't be bothered to hear from. If the Democrats in the House forming the articles of impeachment could not be bothered to hear from all these people, why should the Senate be bothered to hear them? It is the sole duty of the House of Representatives to... To impeach the president of the United States, no Senate trial on impeachment has ever called witnesses who were not first reviewed by the House of Representatives or an outside independent counsel Uh, to, to tell the Senate that they need to do something the House of Representatives could have done is silly. Uh, At the bottom of the hour, Jody Heiss is going to join me, Congressman from here. And we also, we got to get into some of the the ramifications of uh, politics and the presidency. Mike Bloomberg is going out on the media circuit. He's bypassing the uh, debate stage because he hadn't qualified for the debates. And in so doing, the media is asking Mike Bloomberg a bunch of hostile questions. Before we get there, though, can I, I? Yeah, I, I can, because it's my show. I, I want to play this audio for you from Nancy Pelosi yesterday.
11: A case for the country. It just reminds me that I think most Americans would think that voters in America should decide who our president is, not Vladimir Putin in Russia deciding who our president is. I'm very concerned that in all of this, whether it's withholding funds for the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government to fight the Russians; whether it's undermining our commitment uh, to uh, to to NATO; whether it's uh, again making decisions of what happens in Syria vis-a-vis Turkey, favoring the Russians; that all roads lead to Russia, all roads lead to Putin. All
3: roads lead to Putin. This is a fable. At this point, we know it's a fable. You, 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 and listen. I understand if you're on the left and you hate the president. I listen. I get that. There are days I wake up and I think, I can't believe I said I'm going to vote for this guy in 2020. I mean, the mendacity out of this White House is is incredible. the The lack of honesty is incredible. And, and yet. Democrats should consider that there are people like me who are willing to vote for the president over the Democrats uh, all those things being equal because we think the Democrats are worse. But if you're going to come after the president drop the the Russia stuff. I mean this has become a a religious belief from the Democrats it, it is it's not a it's not a, an actual factual thing. Uh, I have read the Mueller report. Yes, there were concerns. But what Vladimir Putin did was not try to get Donald Trump elected. It was to try to sow enough discord that we would fight amongst ourselves. And the very act of Nancy Pelosi impeaching Donald Trump and and sowing more discord and division in the country. That's what Vladimir Putin wanted. And she's given it to him. You know, it's funny. Life goes on. You've got uh, Governor Brian Kemp will be delivering the state of the state address at 11 o'clock. We'll carry it here on the program. And impeachment happening in D.C. All the pomp and circumstance and 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 all the pins for the Democrat because it was so sad and serious. Nancy needed to to have a pile of pins to give away so people could, I'm sure, put them up for auction for fundraisers. Um, but because it was sad, somber and serious historic moment, though, it was joining me by phone Congressman Jody Heiss up there for the spectacle. Congressman, how was your your sad, sober, somber moment yesterday?
12: Unbelievable, isn't it? Uh, they talk about the sad – there they are being all gleeful, laughing, smiling, photo ops, passing out ceremonial pens. It uh, just shows the hypocrisy of it all.
3: Then, you know, listen, I I've, I said yesterday I, while mocking it also, it, it is a historic moment. This is only the third time it's happened. Uh, but what's striking is that this is the first impeachment of a president where you couldn't get a bipartisan buy-in on the impeachment.
12: Yeah, the only thing that was bipartisan was to not impeach the president. Uh, there, there was one Democrat voted against impeaching the president, one voted president, at present, and the other uh, changed parties. So, I mean, that's the uh, that was the bipartisan nature of this. There was nothing bipartisan about uh, impeaching the president, and of course, that's what Pelosi said was required. Uh, that which was compelling, overwhelming, and bipartisan. And of course, none of that was actually part of these articles.
3: Well, and and along those lines, we have the spectacle now of the House of Representatives demanding the Senate uh, have witnesses who the House didn't call. And I've been looking this up for the last two days. I am actually unaware historically of the Senate ever bringing in witnesses for an impeachment trial who had not first been vetted by the House of Representatives or an outside independent counsel investigation, and yet now uh, all this this Constitution and Precedent Matters stuff it seems to be out the window with this House demand.
12: Yeah, that's a great point, Eric, and, and I've not looked at the history of that, but I, I would totally agree you're probably exactly right. And, you know, the House had every opportunity to call whomever they wanted to as witnesses, but they refused to uh, go through the process of doing so. They would subpoena someone. If there was a challenge, uh, then they uh, had the opportunity to take it to the courts, to the judicial branch. That's the way our system operates. But they said, we don't have time to wait for that. It's imperative that we get rid of this president right now. And the, the the Democrats, frankly, are trying to get the Senate to redo the work that they refuse to do themselves. And McConnell is having none of it. And I'm proud of him for taking that position.
3: Well, it also sounds very much like uh, this is going to be a, a, a circular affair. The the House is just going to impeach him again if if they don't get their way with the Senate. I mean, oh, yeah,
12: they, they, they seem to be doing They're that. They're already saying that if this doesn't work, they'll impeach him again. And Pelosi has come out that they will find a way to get rid of this president. And, of course, they were talking impeachment the day he was elected. And interesting, I think, Eric, a lot of people fail to remember this, or maybe it just bypassed it altogether. But before the phone call that the president had with uh, the Ukrainian president Zelensky, there had already been three votes to impeach the president prior to the phone call. Right. Uh, And so, you know, this has been an ongoing uh, issue from the very beginning. They said they were going to impeach him, but we had votes about impeachment before the phone call ever took place. And now they're doing it again. And they say if this fails, they'll come up with something else.
3: Congressman, and if you're just joining me, I'm talking to Congressman Jody Heiss from here in Georgia. Congressman, the Nancy Pelosi went to the floor of the House yesterday and said the reason they're doing this in part is because all roads lead to Putin. And this is widely now discredited given the Mueller report. I, I'm just continuously amazed by the Democrats hanging on to this.
12: Yeah, I am, too, because you go back and you look at how all this started with the whistleblower and the false uh, Christopher Steele, the dossier, the uh, FISA warrants, the whole thing. I mean, this started with the DNC paying for it, Hillary Clinton involved in paying for this false dossier to be written in the first place. And, of course, that was used for the FISA report to start spying on the Trump campaign and, of course, one thing leading to another. It is my hope that if the Democrats are going to try to push for uh, uh, witnesses to be brought forth in the Senate, that the Senate will do the work that they ought to do for the American people and for the sake of justice and start calling some of those people. We need to hear from the whistleblower. We need to hear from Adam Schiff. Who said that he never spoke with the whistleblower? His staff never spoke with the whistleblower, but in fact, we know now that they did. Right. And in fact, the whistleblower was not a whistleblower until after talking uh, with uh, Schiff and his staff. So there's a strong likelihood that the uh, the Adam Schiff team actually created this whistleblower to begin with. Those are the type of witnesses that we need to hear from. Uh, the American people need. Uh, for accountability to take place. And, you know, if, we're, if the Senate is going to go down the path of witnesses, then uh, th- those are the type of witnesses we need to hear from. It,
3: it is interesting, and I, I want to go off on a tangent here. Uh, last week, the New York Times ran a story about the president's, or I guess it was now uh, two weeks ago, the the president's attack on Soleimani in Iraq, and that uh, people within the intelligence and military community said that they put killing Soleimani on the list of options as the most extreme option to make other options look more reasonable, knowing the president would go. There And, oh, they were shocked and appalled the president went for the most outrageous one. You know, they actually ran a similar story about the uh, ban on, on immigration from Arab countries, the so-called Muslim travel ban, that that was an option put in to make it seem really extreme and knowing the president would go reasonable and then surprise he didn't. But I, I'm reading this story from The New York Times, which now directly contradicts stories from other media outlets. And all I could help think is – you know that supposed whistleblower. He's still in the intelligence community, and we know the media has been talking to him for a while. And I, I mean, is there? Do you get the sense that there actually are people uh, within the bureaucracy who just so hate the president they're willing to be useful sources for the media against him?
12: Oh, there's absolutely no no question about that, Eric. You, we we have seen him, of course, being a part of the oversight committee. We've been involved not only in this impeachment thing from the very beginning. But uh, the the Russia collusion uh, deal as well, and you had Peter Strzok, you had all these folks. Absolutely, there are people in various agencies whose attitude and hatred for this president is every bit as much as the uh, Democrat-led majority right now, and they will do anything, including leaking information or whatever it may be, to harm this president, and it is for that reason that we need to get to the bottom of this. The the, uh, deep state is very much alive, and we need to root it out one by one and get behind the president to drain the swamp. The swamp is very real. It's deep, it's smelly, and it needs to be dealt with.
3: Well, now before you get out of here, uh, we are going to have this interesting spectacle of the president having an impeachment trial, and the Senate now coming over to the House for a State of the Union address. That's going to happen probably while the trial is still going on. The Iowa caucus is going on, and the president, and all of this gets a big win with the USMCA passed. It's it's just it really is a weird world in Washington.
12: That is a very kind way of putting it. It is an upside-down world here in Washington. And, you know, but you keep looking at the – what have the Democrats done this past year? Absolutely zero uh, except one agenda item, and that is to go after the president. What has the president, on the other hand, been doing? I mean, we've got USMCA. We now have a trade deal with China, phase one. Uh, We've got our military that's been rebuilt. We have an economy that's absolutely booming. Uh, We have a ton of peripheral issues like the embassy being moved back to Jerusalem after uh, one administration after another saying that would happen. I mean, President Trump is a man of action, and despite the relentless attacks that he has been under, he has been doing what he said he would do. And it's so refreshing to have someone in the White House who is not only making promises to the American people, but keeping those promises in spite of relentless attacks. And uh, so, yeah, it is amazing. It's an upside-down world in spite of all that's happening here. The contrast is absolutely stunning. Uh, that president is working for the American people while the Democrats are working to remove the president. <laughs> it's absolutely remarkable.
3: It is. Well, Congressman, I, I will leave it there with you. Thank you very much for stopping by today. I appreciate it. I know you got a busy Always day ahead of you. glad
12: to. Absolutely.
3: Congressman Jody Heiss from here in Georgia uh, talking about impeachment. You know, he, he makes that point about the president doing this. Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, went to the floor of the House and said this yesterday.
2: There's no greater contrast than what we are doing right here today than what is happening at Pennsylvania Avenue. The president sitting down with another country of a leader and signing a trade agreement. Something people said we could never get done. To make this country stronger, to make America the next century ours. But what are we doing here? We are doing what this majority has worked their entire time for. Before they were even sworn in, they campaigned for the position of chairman for this moment, for this time, for the millions of dollars that are spent so they could say the president is impeached. That's a lofty history. Those are lofty goals that you now have authored more subpoenas than you created laws. But thank God we got a president in the White House that does not sit back. Yes, he got the United States, Mexico, Canada trade agreement, our top two traders. He's sitting with a trade agreement with China today. But think about how much stronger his hand would have been had that agreement taken place earlier when he got it. No, it was held. Why? Because we were impeaching. That's an amazing agenda, but you promised people you would do it. This is not a moment this body should be proud of. If a Speaker Pelosi likes to say, impeachment is a national civics lesson, let's use this blunder as a teachable moment.
3: As a teachable moment, he said, I I, I don't think anyone's going to learn anything from it other than let's do another impeachment. Next president, if it's a Democrat and the Republicans are, are, are there, you know, if Hillary Clinton were president, she'd have been impeached by now, too. It, it is becoming a partisan weapon. Let's just acknowledge it. And for those of you who say that, well, she would have deserved it. Well, the Democrats would be making the arguments Republicans are making right now. Uh, so it is two sides of the same coin here, if we're intellectually honest about it. And I still don't see, you know, for all my criticisms of this president, for all the things about him I, I don't particularly care for, I'm voting for the guy in 2020. The Democratic candidates are too far left. The party has gone left. They, they are hostage to progressivism. And if, I mean, they're creating for conservatives, for, for a lot of people, not just not just hardcore Trump supporters. They're creating this existential crisis of, of they're going to ruin the economy. They're going to uh, shut down faith-based education institutions. They're going to punish Christians. I mean, they're very open about these things. Yeah, you, you say they're not going to punish Christians. You, you deny that, but uh, they want to take away your tax-exempt status if you don't support their social agenda. that's That's punishing them, taking something away from them that they have now legally, silencing people, emboldening uh, cancel culture. That's what they do. I would prefer someone else to be president of the United States. I would love for Mike Pence to be vice president, to be president. But Donald Trump is the guy standing between them and me. So I'll stand with him. may have to hold my nose to do it, but I will. And for them to to trot out an impeachment of the president of the United States without even doing the due diligence that that situation should uh, require is stunning to me. The amount of conversation yesterday about the history and the symbolism and the the sacred nature of the walk and all of that, if impeachment is the the most explosive thing outside of a declaration of war that Congress can do – the House had an obligation to do more due diligence than they did. And they turned it into a partisan affair, complete with a pin signing ceremony to celebrate the fact that they had done it. And we should all look at that and realize they're not really serious. This was all play into the base. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone lines are open. eight seven seven nine seven eric 877-973-7425. If you're south of I-20, this actually is an issue for south of I-20, not north of I-20, uh, be mindful of the fact that the National Weather Service, has many of the, the rivers, particularly if you're south of I-20 and east of 75, uh, that many of the rivers are going to be cresting above flood stage through Sunday. Uh, if you're in, in Macon, for example, the Okmulgee is expected to get up there. If you're down in, uh, Waycross down in, in South Georgia in, in near the Altamaha, it too is expected to flood. Uh, those of you in uh, Milledgeville and the like, uh, Lake Oconee or Lake Oconee, um, the Oconee river is also expected to get above flood stage. The Flint, uh, if you're headed down towards Albany, and the like, uh, it will. It's going to rise, but it's not going to be as significant as the Agmogi, the Oconee, the Altamaha, and and the tributaries there too. So, uh, if you're in middle and south Georgia, just be mindful of that. The rivers are starting to rise pretty significantly from all the rain in north and middle Georgia. Man, I was in a hotel room uh, north of Atlanta last night. Did not intend to be so far north of Atlanta. Got, hotel reservation got screwed up and it started raining in the middle of the night. I thought I was dreaming at first and woke up about 3 o'clock in the morning and just the rain slapping the window uh, woke me up and then got up this morning and everything was my my car parked in the parking lot of the hotel covered in pine straw from being near a pine tree. At least the pine tree didn't come down on top of it. The wind and whatnot uh, was so strong. Uh, The weather around here. I'm ready for winter to come back. Talk about fickle winter out there right now, uh, just bizarre. But it's supposed to start getting cold again across the state. It, well, I shouldn't say it's going to be cold. It's going to be chilly. There's a difference between cold and chilly, isn't there? Uh, right now, it's in the 50s or 60s across the state. Now, I when we come back, the governor is going to be giving his state of the state address. I'm going to spend an hour here with the governor tomorrow, Uh, we have the lieutenant governor this morning. They are in agenda-setting mode for the state legislature to play off of something that Jeff Duncan said earlier. Both he and the governor very much want to reform foster care in the state. They see it as a problem. Uh, Kids who go into foster care in the state of Georgia, you know, I'm going to, let me pull Georgia out of this. Kids in foster care nationwide if they're not put with stable families, the propensity to wind up as victims of abuse is staggering. The propensity to not graduate from high school is staggering. Uh, all these kids want to do is they want to be put back together with their families, and sometimes their parents are incapable of raising them, and that's that's a problem. It's sad. And anything our state can do to help, I think, is something that our state needs to do. And so I commend them for doing that. I I suspect, well, okay, so I've, I've seen the state of the state address. It's embargoed until he releases the line, but they did give enough of a preview of it that I don't feel like I'm breaking the embargo to say, yeah, foster care is something the governor cares deeply about. We're going to hear about that. Uh, I also – I'll take your calls on impeachment on state politics, whatever, uh, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. But I also – we need to talk about Mike Bloomberg because Mike Bloomberg is – he's trying since he's not getting on the debate stage. Mike Bloomberg is trying to go on TV shows, and they keep coming after him on stuff. It it sounds very much like lots of the media Bloomberg thought would be his friends – are not willing to give him a pass on stuff. And he went on The View. Why would anyone go on The View? Do you know I got invited to go on The View several years ago and decided not to? I had been on Joy Behar's show on CNN one time, and, and uh, she wasn't a very pleasant person then. It was me and James Carville. And even Carville Car- – so Carville and I are actually buddies. Uh, Carville and I, we, we got out of this – we were on CNN together for a time. I, I, Mary and James are just wonderful people, dear friends. And get out of there <laughs> – Carville looks at me when we get off the sound stage. <laughs> he looks at me and says, What was that? <laughs> I mean, he said it just that way. And if you know who James Carville is, you could picture him saying, What was that? <laughs> she's she's not a pleasant person. Well well Bloomberg went on the view and Sonny Huston, I think is her name,
11: uh went after him on the zero tolerance stuff. But if I do, I try to change them back and say I'm sorry and listen to people who have
9: ideas. I want to talk to you about that because one of the things that has concerned me about you um, is in November, just a week before your presidential campaign announcement, you apologized for your signature stop and frisk policy. Yep. And let's face it, it caused a 600 increase in police stops that disproportionately targeted black and Latino men, 90 yes. percent of whom were innocent. We're yes. talking about 14 stops out of 10,000 only produced a gun, okay? Many question the authenticity of that apology, Mayor Bloomberg, myself included, only because in January of that year, you stood up up for stop and frisk. So what happened between January and November that caused this change of heart? Because it sounds like a political move to me.
11: Look, when I got elected, I took a look. There was 650 murders a year in New York City most of them were young minority men mm-hmm. and i said we just have to stop this that's where my heart is that's what i want to do and i would do virtually anything i could anything that the professionals gave me some advice to do to stop that and when i left office it was down to 300 so it saved a lot of lives but during that period in looking back it certainly got out of hand and we stopped more what you're never going to have everybody that you stop with a gun we don't know, but the courts had said you can do this, that, or the other thing. The bottom line is when I saw it, it was too we'd – we'd gone way overboard. I stopped it, and before I left office, we'd cut 95 percent of it out.
3: Right. This is the thing – this is like Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Mike Bloomberg again. He is is a candidate rich white people like. Uh, and Buttigieg is getting eaten alive for his policies in South Bend, Indiana, and how they affected minorities. Uh, Bloomberg, he, he, he tries, I think, to come up with a focus group answer of, oh, I, I cut it out, but it, it certainly made crime safe. The problem is you can't say that. It made crime safe, but I cut it out because that signals to other people that, oh, you can be browbeaten into making things less safe by by an angry crowd. He's not doing very well out there. Okay, a quick time out for a new sponsor I'm actually excited about, but it's confession time in the process of me being excited about the sponsor. So, you know, after all the lung stuff I had several years ago, it took me a long time before I was cleared to actually go back and do serious exercise at the gym, and I finally decided to go back to CrossFit about three months ago. Now, I've been paying for the private lessons instead of going to the open hours uh, because I don't want anybody to see my fat behind working out right now uh, as I'm doing burpees and uh, double unders and all the other awful stuff uh, but I'm only going three days a week because it's expensive to do the private stuff I gotta have to do something at home because I got a couple days a week where I got to be burning calories when I'm not doing it and I was really thinking about the peloton option but I don't want to pay a ton for a peloton and it's expensive well I discovered echelon and now I'm really actually pleased that echelon is a sponsor of the show it's live and on-demand studio classes in your home. You can use your iPad. Uh, you can put them on your fitness bike. You can put them on... Uh, they've got them on the Apple TV or or your TV. You can stream it. You can get them on your iPad. They've even got one of the mirror options where you can do the exercises in the mirror. Join hundreds of thousands of people, myself included now, uh, getting fit with Echelon. You don't have to pay a ton for Peloton. You can get an Echelon bike today for under $1,000. So go to echelonfit.com slash Eric. Learn about their limited time free Apple iPad and complete details of the exclusive offer. Echelon. It's your time. Make the most of it and don't go broke doing it. That's E E E C H E L O N E C H E L O N fit.com slash Eric. Echelon fit.com slash Eric. Y'all I'm, if I can do it, you can do it. It's great. And we'll get in shape together. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here at the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. If you use Uber, Lyft, or Airbnb, you're about to get taxed. The legislature has decided to raise taxes on you. There are uh, different studies now coming out on the film tax credit, but there also is the audit. I suspect they're going to put that off. Uh, I am watching the floor camera. In the Georgia House of Representatives, uh, David Ralston, who hates my guts, is up there at the front. Jeff Duncan has just arrived to shake his hand. Uh, By the way, if you want to get rid of the Speaker, and you should because he's a terribly corrupting influence in the state legislature, uh, and he's going to be a hindrance to the GOP in the 2020 race, I encourage you to text the word SPEAKER to 52886 text the word speaker to 52886, uh, take action, call, email your state representative. If, if, so what happens is if you text speaker to 52886, you'll get a link back on your phone. You click the link and it sends you to my action center where you put in your zip code and it will s- generate an email on your behalf to your state representative saying, I am a constituent. David Ralston doesn't need to be your speaker anymore. Sign the David Clark resolution to oust him. And then if you follow through on it, you'll also see a little phone button, and you click the phone button, and you'll hear my voice say, I'm going to connect you to your state representative right now, and it'll call their office. Now, I'm watching the floor cam Because the governor of the state of Georgia any moment will walk into the chamber of the House of Representatives and give his state of the state speech. I have read his state of the state speech. Tomorrow he is going to spend an hour with me going over his state of the state speech, the things that he wants to do as governor in Georgia. Uh, It should be a good speech and it should be a good interview tomorrow with him. We will spend uh, probably the first hour tomorrow, maybe the second hour uh, I will, I'll do it cause I'm going to record the interview with him this afternoon and bring it to you in the morning. In fact, I'll be over there. He gives his speech. And then as soon as I'm done with the show today, I head straight over to the state Capitol to meet with him. Uh, it should be a good speech. They await his presence. He will be summoned by the speaker of the house who is behind the podium now, uh, with the Lieutenant governor to his side as they summon the governor in, uh, they'll be pounding the gavel shortly. Uh, as you know, I, I as I say all the time, I have grand global ambi- ambitions for this program, but I'm also mindful that right now we're a Georgia program only on Georgia stations, and so I should do my best to cover Georgia news for you. And uh, the governor giving the state of the state is one of those things, and you don't really ever get the opportunity to interact with it, so I will. Uh, in the meantime, there is other news as we wait for him uh, coming in, uh, R.E.M. bassist Mike Mills doesn't like Donald Trump, but he doesn't like when the president plays his band songs at his rallies. Informed that Trump played Everybody Hurts and Losing My Religion at recent events, the Macon, Georgia natives started researching ways to get the president to back off. We are aware that the president continues to use our music at his rallies. He said we are exploring all legal avenues to present, prevent this, but if that's not possible, please know that we do not condone the use of our music. Uh, Mills might want to ask Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones frontman, tried to prevent the president uh, from doing the thing, but here's the problem. Uh, If you write a song and someone plays it, you can't stop them. They can play it what they want, uh, as long as there are licensing fees that they play. So, for example, if you listen to the podcast of this program, you'll notice that all the music that you would otherwise encounter is stripped out. And the reason is because you can't actually play uh, commercial music in podcasts. Uh, The licensing is ridiculous. If, but if you listen to a live stream of the program, you can play the music. You have to pay a, a all the radio stations, pay a royalty fee to um, the different – there are different outlets uh, that you pay, and the music is covered, and the the artists get a royalty from it. it it's not small, but it adds up over time with everyone pe- pe- playing it. So, for example, if uh, my opening song is is – we, we edited it up and added some stuff to it, but my opening song is, is Arcade Fire's Wake Up. I love Arcade Fire, uh, and uh, they would hate my guts if they knew that it was my opening song because they are very, very progressive. Uh, but nonetheless, eh, I every radio station that plays my show pays royalty for the music played on the station. If, if you play 10 seconds of music, the radio stations are obligated. Uh, now, the judiciary is entering the building here. I see Steve Dillard, my friend from down in Macon. He's the uh, chief judge of the Court of Appeals. There's the the Georgia Supreme Court coming in. We will bring the governor's speech to you live as this happens. Now, one, one other nugget of state news for you. Um, so House Bill 736 has been entered, uh, filed. It is authored by Dave Belton. He is from Buckhead, North Atlanta, It would offer student loan forgiveness to teachers who work in Georgia's worst-performing schools. The Georgia Federation of Teachers uh, wants language in the bill changed or wants the measure killed. Let me read you. This is, he wants to do student loan forgiveness for teachers in Georgia, but the Georgia Federation of Teachers doesn't want it. Let let me read you what they say. We believe the bill as written will continue to bolster the charter school industry. Although the, the American Federation of Teachers was a major proponent of charter schools, Georgia charter schools are mutations of what those professional educators and teacher leaders had in mind. Language that allows teachers assigned to turnaround schools to receive loan forgiveness should be changed to teachers assigned to Title I schools. In a capitalist society, unfortunately, the economically disadvantaged will always exist. Wait a second. In a capitalist society, the economically diva- disadvantaged will always exist, but there will be less of them than in a communist society, you idiots. Schools should be great equalizers. In the United States, public schools have helped to create the middle class. The correlation between poverty and student success is glaring. So so to put this in perspective, Georgia Republicans are considering loan forgiveness for teachers who teach in failing public schools in the state of Georgia, if you're willing to accept the challenge of going in and teaching in, in tough public schools in the state, Georgia is willing to forgive your loans. And the Georgia Federation of Teachers wants it killed because because charter school teachers could benefit. That is just, to me, a little bit of insanity, that they would punish teachers who choose to work in a charter school. I just think that, I mean, this gives you an idea of where we are in the poisonous atmosphere here in the state, that the Georgia Federation of Teachers would want to punish teachers who teach in schools that are challenging um, because those are charter schools. Now, here, here's the way the AJC actually fired it up originally. Um, teachers in some Georgia schools could have their student loan debts forgiven. House Bill 736 would give relief to teachers working in the state's turnaround schools, Georgia's designation of the worst-performing schools. There are 105 turnaround-eligible schools on the 2019 list. 28 of those schools are in metro Atlanta. The House is a bipartisan measure, House Bill 736. But because some of those turnabout failing schools have become charter schools, the Georgia Federation of Teachers is opposed to the legislation because they want to kill off charter schools. They are deeply hostile to charter schools in the state of Georgia. That's just that's just crazy, and that's where we are. Now, the governor is about to enter the well of the House of Representatives. Uh, I want to go on, take a commercial timeout. Uh, he will be coming in a momentarily. I want to be able to bring you some of his speech from the floor of the House. Uh, this is Eric Erickson. We'll take your phone calls as well. 404 No, wrong phone number. 877 97 Eric 877 Oh, I've been so busy the last couple of days, I've been bad at writing. I'm going to get in trouble with the, the website staff at The Resurgent, but you can go there and find everything. You can listen to the podcast there. Uh, we'll be setting up the live streaming there as well for the radio show very shortly. Um, I am continuing to wait for the governor to enter the building. Johnny Isaacson, U.S. senator, now retired, on the floor. David Ralston commending him. He's the only citizen of Georgia to have ever served in the Georgia State House, the Georgia State Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and the United States Senate. uh, Served in all four. And uh, he got a standing ovation there. Governor and Mrs. Deal present as well for the State of the State Address. This will be Brian Kemp's second State of the State Address. Uh, They await him. He has now uh, lined up. He is being announced by the Speaker of the House. We will... Go play some of that audio here. Listen, you can listen to some of this as the governor Brian Kemp makes his second state of the state address here in Georgia. We will bring you some of this audio. Chamber,
5: uh, hoping to shake hands with the governor and other those who are. This is the voice from Georgia Public Broadcasting? So close. He will uh, be escorted to the podium. And uh, within a very few minutes after that.
3: We... Yeah, we'll wind that back down until he gets up there. You got Tim Duncan, his chief of staff there with him. Uh, yep, there's Miriam Paris, uh, a good friend of hers. She and I were in the city council together back in Macon, Georgia. Uh, she is now a in the state's, uh, she's in the state house of representatives uh, and a wonderful, wonderful human being. Is the governor makes his way through, you know, you, you got to go through the cavalcade of shaking people's hands. And what's so funny here is you've got all these parts. You see this in the State of the Union. You know, this is something you're going to see when President Trump delivers his State of the Union address. It's going to be this bizarre spectacle of these Democrats who wanted him impeached are going to be clamoring to shake his hand. They all want to shake his hand. They all want to be on TV because they know if they shake his hand, they're guaranteed to be on TV because the TV follows the camera in. It's a somewhat funny spectacle to see that happen. Uh, crowded day. Of the, I guess I'm going to have to Uber down there for my interview with him this afternoon. Uh, I will. Uh, as, as I head down to the state capitol to interview the governor here in just a little while after he gives a state of the state speech. Some of the things he wants to, to talk about in the speech, I know from his preview, is foster care reform, but also gangs and crime in the state of Georgia. Uh, there is a, a little bit of a sense that the governor wants to undo some of the Nathan Deal reforms on criminal justice. Nathan Deal uh, was big into diversion, taking people who necessarily weren't weren't uh, aggressive criminals, uh, who were addicted to drugs or whatnot, and move them into treatment facilities. It was actually a, a great idea. And I don't think Governor Kip wants to undo some of that, but to the extent that some people maybe got out that shouldn't have, um, they they want to crack back down on that. Uh, let's listen in here now. The governor has made it to the, the well of the House of Representatives, David Ralston, introducing him. had
12: a very distinguished career as a member of the state senate, a successful businessman, uh, did a tremendous job for this state as secretary of state, and was elected in November of 2018 to be the governor of Georgia. He has led this state in a very strong way and reflective of the fact that he has a heart for all of Georgia. I am proud to call him my friend and I am proud to call him my governor. Please make welcome today Governor Brian
6: P. Kemp.
3: And the Speaker vacates the podium, and the Governor begins the State of the State. His second State of the State speech is Governor of the State of Georgia.
0: Oh, thank you all so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for the kind introduction, Mr. Speaker. Lieutenant Governor Duncan, Speaker Ralston, Mayor Bottoms, Governor and Mrs. Deal, President Pro Tem Miller, Speaker Pro Tem Jones, and members of the General Assembly. Constitutional officers, members of the judiciary, members of the Consular Corps, and my fellow Georgians. During my first State of the State speech, I talked about a wise builder who put his house on a sure foundation. The rain and the winds came, the floodwaters rose, but the house stood firm. I tipped my hat to Governor Deal and those lawmakers that came before me, those who poured the concrete and laid the footings. Hard-working Georgians who left this place better than they found it. One year ago, I urged those in this room, in this historic space, to join me in building a safer, stronger, and more prosperous state. A state where small businesses are empowered to grow, invest, and thrive. Where government is responsive and effective. A state where healthcare is affordable, accessible, and where the rights of the unborn are protected. I ask lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, to join me in the fight for Georgia's future, to crack down on gangs and sex trafficking, to invest in education and our educators, to stand up for our values and those we value, to put politics and partisanship behind us and unite for the greater good. Over the last 12 months, we have realized incredible success and endured hardships. We have seen the fruits of our labor, and we have seen the power of God's providence. In 2019, we stood together on the construction site, building on a sure foundation. I'm proud of what we accomplished, but there's still more work to be done. As your governor, I have been honored to travel this great state. And everywhere I go, I start out by saying the same thing. It is a great time to be a Georgian. Wouldn't you agree? Right now, our unemployment rate is 3.3%. That's the lowest in our state's history. We have a record number of hard working Georgians in the workforce. Our state is the number one place for business for the seventh year in a row. During the last 12 months since I addressed this joint session, we have added over 64,000 private sector jobs of the 371 economic development projects announced by the state in 2019, 79% of them were outside of Atlanta in communities like Cairo, Cartersville, and Commerce, creating economic opportunity no matter what your zip code. The state of the state is strong. And, folks, we are just getting started. (laughs) I was raised to work hard. And I know that my mom who's in the audience today remembers driving me around with a push mower in the trunk of her red Buick LeSabre (laughs) that we nicknamed the red dog. (laughs) I had a bunch of odd jobs growing up, but construction is the one that stuck. There's something about the process that drew me in. Every step is important. Every moment matters. I started with a pickup truck and a shovel, digging ditches, pouring concrete and hammering nails. Over the years, I've built homes, apartments, light commercial, multi-use. I've volunteered on habitat houses, remodeled the rape crisis center in Athens, and even built my own home where we live today. But I will be honest, I'm proudest of what we are building right now under this gold dome We have framed the house with strong Georgia-grown lumber, cut in a local sawmill and brought to the job site. In year two, it's time to set our sights on the sheetrock, the siding, and the bricks. Each side of the structure will protect those inside by providing an environment right for learning, opportunity, and growth. Every window looks to the future a door that welcomes those in need and those who want help.
3: That's Governor Brian Kemp. He is speaking right now to a joint session of the Georgia legislature, giving his State of the State address. We've got a hard break here uh, in less than a minute, so I'm going to step out from the speech. I assume he'll still be speaking when we come back. We will go back to it for a little bit, and he will be with me for an hour tomorrow on the radio, talking about the themes of his speech today economic strength for the state, creating jobs outside the Atlanta area, getting tough on crime in the state, helping local communities, dealing with foster care and increasing technology across the state of Georgia. Some of the issues that he's expected to address today in his state of the State speech uh, happening right now in the Georgia legislature. We will get back to that speech here after this commercial break with this here radio station you're listening to me on. It is a day with pomp and circumstance at noon. The House in Impeachment managers will do that grand walk again, I'm sure, with, with glowing commentary yet again, as they walk over to the Senate of the United States and drop off the articles of impeachment again for inspection. Right now, in the state of Georgia, underneath the Gold Dome, in a joint session of the General Assembly, Brian Kipp is delivering his State of the State address. We will go back to that.
0: ...health care billing. Families are living on a prayer because the system is rigged against them. This year, we will implement long-overdue reforms that put our families first. Working with patients, providers, and the private sector, we'll craft legislative remedies to reduce surprise medical billing. We will demand... (laughs) We will demand transparency, embrace empathy, And insist on fairness. We will take care of each other in sickness and in health. Now I know that reform, especially in health care, is daunting. And while the road ahead is long, there are plenty of men and women who have gone before us. Bold leaders and public servants who blazed a trail and set a standard for countless Georgians to follow. One of these people is Senator Johnny Isakson. The Republican Party, Johnny Isaacson is a man of character and incredible determination. He served under this gold dome in the Georgia General Assembly, chaired the State Board of Education, and went on to represent Georgia's sixth congressional district in the U.S. Capitol. And for 15 years, Johnny Isaacson was our U.S. Senator. He is a gentleman, a statesman, and a true patriot. Like you, I was incredibly saddened when Johnny announced that he had Parkinson's disease and again when he called to announce his retirement from the U.S. Senate. And while I'm confident that Kelly Leffler will do an incredible job representing our state and our best interests, we are truly losing a giant in Washington. I've heard it said that words matter, but actions mean more. That's why today I want to take another step in honoring Johnny Isaacson's service. Right now, over 20,000 Georgians are living with Parkinson's disease, with new patients diagnosed every single day. And while treatable, Parkinson's Parkinson's disease has no cure. I don't know about you all, but I want to change that. Thanks to the leadership of President Jerry Moorhead, we are creating a Johnny Isaacson professorship for Parkinson's research at the University of Georgia.
3: and innovation there for the governor and for Johnny Isaacson. On that news, a Ph.D. level Parkinson's research professorship at the University of Georgia. Yeah, it's
0: going to be great. great. we got to figure out how to do it <laughs> I <want> to <laughs> Figure out how to do what he
3: says on the hot mic.
0: Once recruited, this Ph.D. researcher will develop better treatments for patients like Johnny better medication, and a better quality of life. Through this partnership, we will use technology and innovation to break new ground. With the grit and the resolve of Johnny Isaacson, we will move one step closer to a cure. Our house here in Georgia will be a healthy one, with a big frame photo of Johnny right there on the wall. Our children and our grandchildren will walk past and ask about the statesman pictured. His story is Georgia's story. His legacy will live on for generations to come. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me again welcome and thank this great man for his great service to our state, Senator Johnny Isaacson.
3: And another standing ovation there. You are listening to Governor Brian Kemp give his State of the State Address, happening live now under the Gold Dome in a joint session of the Georgia General Assembly. talking you here, interestingly enough, that's the governor and the Speaker of the House talking on a hot mic.
0: Right. Right. While George is experiencing historic growth we have a statewide threat that undermines our safety and our future. Here it comes. Criminal street gangs continue to grow in size and scope, impacting every county and every part of our state. These organized crime units are flooding our streets with weapons, violence, and fear. They are ripping apart the fabric of our communities. They are eroding the foundations of our families. This year, with your help, we launched the Anti-Gang Task Force at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Under the bold leadership of Director Vic Reynolds, we are partnering with local law enforcement and prosecutors to stop and dismantle gangs throughout Georgia. We are providing the resources and training needed to put these dangerous criminals behind bars. We are working around the clock to keep our neighborhoods safe. While Georgia already has tough gang statutes on the books, there's more that we can do to stop violence from taking over our state. There's more that we can do to prevent another innocent person from being shot, another law enforcement officer being killed. And while some in the media refuse to acknowledge the gang crisis, I don't have to convince Deborah Ryder. A decade ago, Deborah's son, Nicholas, was sleeping in his room when gunshots rang out and ripped through the walls. A drive-by shooting organized by a local gang left Nicholas dead at the age of 10. Deborah, we are sorry for your loss, and while we can't bring Nicholas back, we will champion tough anti-gang legislation in his honor. Thank you for being with us. session we will empower law enforcement and prosecutors so these people will get the justice that they deserve. We will work around the clock to prevent this tragedy from happening to another family, another Nicholas in our state. We will do our part to make this right. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me thank Deborah again for her service and her relentless commitment to honoring her son's life. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Just to
3: give you a sense again of this from the governor's speech, Deborah Ryder is who they're thinking. About 10 years ago, her son Nicholas was sleeping in his room. Gunshots came through the walls. It was a drive-by shooting organized by a local gang. Nicholas was 10 years old, completely uninvolved, accidental shooting, and died. And her, she has been emboldened to take on gangs ever since.
0: Bought and sold for sex in our state. Traffickers use Atlanta as a hub, trading human life like it's a commodity. Shortly after taking office, we created the Grace Commission to help coordinate efforts and to end modern-day slavery in our state. Under the leadership of our First Lady, Marty Kemp, the Grace Commission has worked to raise awareness. They have partnered with elected officials, law enforcement, nonprofit organizations, and those that have been in the trenches for years fighting human trafficking. They had traveled the state to sound the alarm and urge action. During this time, Marty has met some incredible, inspirational Georgians, who have devoted their lives to help another. others. Today in the gallery, we're honored to have Katie, Shamika, and Nikki. Sadly, these women have something in common. They were trafficked as kids, robbed of their innocence and childhood, forced to see and experience things that we cannot imagine. But these women are survivors, they're fighters, and they're powerful advocates who are working to turn Georgia into a safe haven for those who have no voice, who exist in the shadows, and who need an ally to shine a light into the darkness. Members of the House and Senate, we are asking once again for your help to win this fight against human trafficking. We must advance legislation this session that closes loopholes that leave children vulnerable to ex- exploitation. We must help victims tell their story in the courtroom without the fear of retaliation. We must support survivors who want to enter the workforce but still bear the scars of the past. The house we are building will be safe and secure and we will not stop working until it is. I hope you will join me in applauding the bravery of those that are with us in the gallery today.
3: I'm trying to be good with my clock management here as well. The governor, uh, he's got a few more minutes left in his state of the state speech. I'm going to go on and and jump out of it, not because I want to, but really because we've got clock management we've got to deal with here on the show as well. Uh, He does. He is about to go on and uh, note again that Georgia is a state that values life. Uh, A simple statement in defense of the the fetal heartbeat legislation, and he will say, as a pro-life governor, I believe we need to protect the unborn and the born. We have to defend those in the womb and then champion those when they leave the delivery room. It's incredibly sad how many children are abandoned in our hospitals, hundreds every year, living, breathing babies, discarded, forgotten, innocent and full of potential, now wards of the state. Uh, he will cite Governor Deal as making incredible progress in updating adoption laws, and say he wants to triple the adoption tax credit from two thousand to six thousand dollars to help parents offset the cost of adoption and lower the adoption age from twenty-one to twenty from twenty-five to twenty-one, so more qualified Georgians can adopt and more children can be placed. He also wants to launch the Family's First Commission so they can begin to change the way the state's foster care system operates and serve the most vulnerable among them. Again, uh, Governor Kemp going to be joining me for an hour tomorrow uh, to talk about all this here on the program. But having spent th- so much time in the state of Georgia today with the lieutenant governor and the Governor, state of the state speech, there is more happening in Washington today we need to get to and out on the campaign trail. We're going to go and take a time, back, time out, and we will come back with uh, what's going on in D.C. and <laughs> more on Mike Bloomberg trying to suck it up to progressives on The View. Uh, Let's see, it would help if I actually turned my sound on now, on my laptop, so I can push this button and take a commercial timeout. Well, a short time ago, this happened on the floor of the United States Senate while Governor Kemp was speaking.
6: House Democrats said over and over that they recognized the gravity and the seriousness of this action. And, of course, they had only come to it reluctantly. Well, nothing says seriousness and sobriety like handing out souvenirs. As though this were a happy bill signing instead of the gravest process in our Constitution. This final display neatly distilled the House's entire partisan process into one perfect visual. It was transparently partisan performance from beginning to end. That's why they sped through a slapdash inquiry in 12 weeks when previous presidential in- impeachments <clears throat> came after months, if not years, <clears throat> of investigations and hearings.
3: Yeah, McConnell's not having any of it, and the Democrats are trying to build pressure on the Senate to have witnesses, and I don't think they're going to do it, but... Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Eli Mistel on, he's one of the progressive commentators on MSNBC. He's also on democracy now Wow, with Amy Goodman. Oh boy. Back in the day, she and I used to be on, um, on, on CNN together. And you could say, I uh, seriously, listen, she's a very nice woman. Uh, but you could say, let's see, um, uh, Miss Goodman, what do you think happens when you put potassium permanganate in uh, hydrogen peroxide? Well, it would cause a catalyst it would cause it's a catalyst it would cause a catalytic reaction and speed up a reaction very much like the destruction of of palestine by israel and the the bush administration invading iraq just sped up uh, chaos in the middle east and we need to do something about the chaos in the middle east you'd be like uh... And then you say, um, Ms. Goodman, can you explain how airplanes take off?" Y'all, seriously, I, I was on on TV with this woman for several years, and it was always they they finally stopped having her on uh, with me because sir, you you would ask her, uh, Miss Goodman, uh, how how does a, an airplane wing generate lift? She says. Well, uh, what happens is because of the shape of the wing, the air over the top of the wing moves faster than the air underneath the wing, which is very much like how George W. Bush structured to get lift of, of the Senate and the House going into the Middle East. He he created this pressure campaign that altered the pressure of balance and required the entire mobilization effort for the war to lift off in Washington before anyone had time to be reasonable. And we need to do something about the Iran and Iraq situation because we are the enemy invader in Iraq. It was, it was bizarre. I mean— Everything. How many times a day do you use the bathroom? Not as many times as George W. Bush lied to us to get us into a wreck. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> Everything was about that. So, but she's got a, She's got this. Uh, it's kind of like um, a cable TV access show,
8: Democracy Now. And and this guy was on there. Listen to this. Uh, 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 Hill, uh, uh, Fiona Hill, Um, people who saw it but didn't speak directly to the president. Only Sondland spoke directly to the president throughout the House inquiry. Now, in the Senate trial, we should be able to hear from people who spoke directly to the president. That includes Bolton. And to me, that includes Mick Mulvaney. Mick Mulvaney is the one who put the stop on the money. If Trump had a good reason for that, Mick Mulvaney is the one who can say so. Or not. So these are the people that I, that I want to hear from. Um, these are, I think, the people that the, that the American people deserve to hear from. And on the flip side of this, I and mean, you, you brought up off air, um, the Cruz, the Ted Cruz, uh, what he thinks is a poison pill. Like,
11: Reciprocal witnesses. If, if,
8: if you get to call uh, your guys, then we get to call Hunter Biden. Man, bring it on. Hunter Biden, come on down. I'm not—you you, want to trade Hunter Biden for Bolton and Mulvaney? Please, bring it—I I have no problem with Hunter Biden being forced to testify. Hunter Biden's just going to have to take one for the team. Right. He it's 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 not relevant. It's not appropriate. It's part of the Republican shell game that they're running. But like, uh, Biden, Hunter Biden can can I, I will make that trade every day and twice on Sunday. Do you think-
3: I, I have no idea what they, they they the voiceover there was for the um, for the, the the Biden stuff. But so they're, they're willing to have Do they see? Here's the problem. The Democrats are yet again convinced that there's a silver bullet. They are yet again. Do you really believe that Mick Mulvaney or John Bolton are going to sabotage this president? Particularly, you know, and they can say, OK, we're, we're setting it up for Mike Pence. Sure, we'll help sabotage. But that's not really it. Uh, the way everybody looks at this, including Mulvaney and Bolton, is that it is Donald Trump or the Democrats. Do you think that John Bolton, who is vehemently ideologically opposed to the foreign policy agenda of the left is going to undermine the president of the United States who killed Soleimani, someone that Bolton has wanted dead for a long time. Do you really believe that these people are trying to find silver bullets that that will take out the president? And they can't. Silver bullets are as much a mythology as uh, Russia stealing the election for Donald Trump. That's that's deeply, deeply problematic. And yet they're going to do their best with it. And I think they're going to be sorely disappointed. I think that the Democrats are setting themselves up for more heartbreak. I think that the Democrats are setting themselves up to just be angry again. And, and you know what? Anger doesn't actually win elections. I realize there are a lot of angry people in America, but people want to vote for someone. They don't want to just vote because they're angry, angry that they turn on each other. I mean, we're seeing this with the Democratic Party right now. Look at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren turning on each other. I mean, they're going to fight with each other so much they're going to make Joe Biden happen. Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. And what will happen with Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee? Well, his son will testify before the United States Senate about how he profited from his father being in Washington And they don't think this is going to hurt Joe Biden. Yes, it is. This is going to be a spectacle that plays out over the coming weeks. And we will be here to enjoy the spectacle with you.
6: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
9: O, 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 O'Reilly
2: Auto Parts.